0: This is Linda Lindblad, CTO of the Forever Social. This, I believe, will be my last words.
1: Whoa. What happens next is not pretty. Forever Has Fallen is a podcast thriller drawing you into heart-racing action, fusing an immersive soundscape with online challenges, rewards, and hidden content. Humanity's hope for immortality is on the run. Join the hunt for the truth. Foreverhasfallen.com.
2: Stay up to date on the latest from Heidi Ellen's story. Make sure you subscribe, download, follow, and rate Peoples for the People on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever else you listen to your podcasts. It was April 3rd, 1994, a snowy Easter Sunday just before 8 in the morning when Heidi made her last transaction at the D&W convenience store in Mexico where she worked and then disappeared.
1: But well, the big question remains tonight, where is Heidi Allen? They said they grabbed her from behind the counter
3: and dragged her out the door and threw her in the back of Michael uh, Bohr's van. I do not know Michael Bohr had a white
1: band. Well, they, it's not even, they didn't even bring her in the house. They did not set
4: What do you think happened to Heidi? What was done with her body?
5: He laid down in two areas, which was a sign, it's an indication that there were human remains. All I know is they ended up chopping her up. If
6: they would have put that van on my trailer and Heidi would have been in that van, that's where it would have went. Right to the shredder.
2: I've been in this from day one, it, you know, there's nothing else I can tell you. This is the story of Heidi Allen. The story of a small town kidnapping where corruption got in the way of justice.
4: The truth is finally coming out.
2: In the last episode, we learned that despite the Oswego County sheriffs denying Heidi was ever a confidential drug informant, there were records of her involvement with police, and her family even admitted knowing she was an informant. We also learned that Deputy Chris Van Patten exposed Heidi's identity as an undercover informant when he dropped her informant card in the parking lot of the D&W convenience store. The discovery of these files, in addition to the new evidence, was enough for Gary Thibodeau's defense team to be granted a hearing in county court to set aside his 1995 conviction. But just before 5 p.m. on the Friday before the hearing, District Attorney Greg Oaks dumped an extraordinary amount of information on the defense. Deep in the flood of reports, recordings, and videos, was a report of an eyewitness who could help prove Gary's innocence, a report that Oakes held to for six months before turning it over at the last minute.
0: When he came back with that box, my jaw dropped. My jaw dropped. I, I was dumped on on Friday.
2: This is Peebles for the People, and I'm Alex Peebles.
1: I don't know what the world's been missing, but I think we need a miracle. I'm sorry.
2: Despite the discovery of new evidence that might help find Heidi, her family and the people close to her were resistant to believe anything that would lead to Gary Thibodeau's exoneration. To this day, they believe the Thibodeaus are the only ones who can lead them to their long lost loved one. On June 2, 2020, Heidi Allen's sister, Lisa Buskey, appeared on a podcast called Can I Help Find Your Missing Loved One? to discuss her sister's kidnapping. In this 37 minute interview, Busky accused Richard and Gary Thibodeau of threatening eyewitnesses who she says saw the two brothers kidnapping Heidi.
3: And there were witnesses that came forward that refused to testify and said it was because, you know, their families were threatened and so they wouldn't testify. You know, and that's the kind of stuff that doesn't make it into the newspaper or the courtroom because they never took the stand. Yeah. That- you know, and, they, and they tell the family and the, you know, the sheriffs, I'm sorry, I can't testify. They threatened my family. You know, so you had eyewitnesses that saw more. But because, you know, they said they were threatened and their families were threatened, they refused to testify. And you have to respect them. They're trying to protect their family because they know what they saw. They believed what they saw. But you, you can't, you know, you can't harbor bad feelings towards somebody protecting their family.
2: Lisa Busky's claim that eyewitnesses to the crime were intimidated and refused to testify has not been proven by any reporting or documentation. If eyewitnesses did come forward claiming they saw the Thibodeaux kidnap Heidi that morning, there would have been police reports, but none exist. Furthermore, saying that the Thibodeaux threatened witnesses to keep them off the stand is a very serious and baseless accusation. The formal charge is called intimidation of a witness, and if those eyewitnesses, who Busky never named, did come forward and told police that the Thibodeaus threatened them, well. That would have resulted in more reports and more charges against the brothers. But again, there is no record of any of that. Because it never happened. And Busky knows that. What Lisa Busky and her family went through is absolutely tragic. Not knowing what really happened to their loved one must bring insurmountable pain and suffering to the family. But more and more, it seems that they were led down a path of deceit by the very people who were investigating Heidi's kidnapping.
3: The Swiggo County sheriffs, every time they get a new batch of investigators in, their first assignment is to go through my sister's case and find the needle in the haystack. That's the assignment they are given. Wow. That doesn't happen on all missing persons cases. No, no, it doesn't. And, and they send, send me, in, me And they, I mean, I have on my phone... The DA, the ADA, the sheriff, and my sister, the lead investigator on her case, I have all of their cells and private cells on my cell phone. Aw, that's so nice. <laughs> and they have me, and they always say, call anytime you need me. But I think that was something my parents established in the beginning, because my dad and the sheriff were friends. My sister, one of her best friends was the sheriff's son. So... Heidi wasn't just a missing person to him. Yeah. You know, Heidi was the girl that came over to the pool parties when the class got together. Because, I mean, I think her graduating class at Bishop Cunningham was like 18 people. I mean, it was a small, you know, so the sheriff knew her. He knew my dad. It wasn't missing child case number. It was Heidi that was at my house for a cookout in a pool party.
2: Busky was referring to Sheriff Mo Todd. Remember, Todd was the undersheriff in charge of the investigation when Heidi originally went missing. I got the chance to call Sheriff Mo Todd. Hi, out and looking for former Sheriff Mo Todd. Who's calling? My name's Alex Peebles. I am a journalist, and I'm doing a podcast about uh, the Heidi Allen kidnapping. And was just hoping to see if I could uh, talk to him about the investigation. Alex Peebles. Peebles? Yep. So, yes. Yep. I'm I'm the son of Lisa Peebles. Hello. Hey, Sheriff Todd. How are you? Just fine. Um, I just uh, I I assume that was that your wife I was speaking to. Yes. Did she explain to you uh, who I was? Yep. Okay. So yeah, I'm doing a podcast, and I was just hoping. Um, to see if you'd you'd be willing to answer a couple of questions for me um, about the investigation and everything. No. Uh,
6: It's over. It's done with. I have no more comments to say about anything. It's over. It's done. He's passed, and it's 25 years ago almost now. Enough is enough for that family, for for, uh, the Allen family. Enough is enough. I have no more comments.
2: Despite Todd's claims that the case is over and done with, let's not forget that District Attorney Greg Oaks says this case will remain open until Heidi is brought home.
5: Until we recover Heidi and bring her home, the investigation remains open.
2: Even though most of Heidi's family was sure that both Richard and Gary Thibodeau were the ones behind her 1994 kidnapping and presumed murder, Gary Thibodeau was fighting tooth and nail to overturn his conviction. And throughout the entire process, it seemed like he and his newly found defense team were trying to take on an impossible fight. Remember what former defense attorney and county court judge Joe Fahey said. Once
7: somebody's convicted, the system goes into overdrive Mm -hmm. to protect that conviction, irrespective of what kind of exculpatory evidence is later turned up. DNA evidence, obviously that's forensically conclusive. Right. But if it's not DNA evidence, the, 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 the system goes into overdrive to preserve to the sure. finality of that conviction.
2: But that did not stop Lisa Peebles and Randy Bianco from rolling up their sleeves and digging in. As the 2014 holiday season flew by in January 12, 2015, the first day of Gary's hearing, was here. Lewis County Court Judge Daniel King presided over Gary's hearing. Before becoming a judge, King was the Lewis County Public Defender from 1993 through 2009, and had been a judge for just two years before handling Gary's hearing. In preparation for the hearing, Gary's defense team researched King, and according to Bianco, they found no record of King handling any appeals as an attorney.
4: What we saw is there's nothing indicating that he had done any appeals because there was nothing in the appellate division. But And we looked it up on, like, uh, through the, um, like, Westlaw system to see if his name was any, under the appeals, and it wasn't.
2: So what what's the significance of that?
4: I guess the significance of that would be his experience you know, in terms of handling these type of things, like evidentiary issues.
2: Despite their concerns over King's lack of experience, Gary and his defense team were ready to fight for the truth. Until District Attorney Greg Oaks dumped a massive amount of evidence on the defense on the Friday evening before the hearing. Lisa Peebles was beside herself when she saw what Oaks had dumped on them at the 11th hour. Here's her reaction in court.
0: It's important to point out, had this court denied our motion for a hearing, we never would have seen the almost 3,000 pages of discovery, the 18 hours of audio, the eight hours of video, which had been created before they filed their response. We never would have seen that information. So to sit here and tell this court That they are trying to fulfill their ethical obligations is nothing. the most disingenuous argument I've heard. It's ridiculous. My investigator was called at at almost uh, quarter after five on Friday, or or quarter after four, and I'm asked whether he can drive to the Great Northern Mall to meet their investigator to pick up a box. I thought it was gonna be, I had no idea. It was pulling teeth, I was trying to get, the search report, I had made numerous requests for the search report that they conducted in August of 2014 and he said I would get it. I thought that's what I was gonna be getting on Friday, which I would have had no problem with. When he came back with that box, my jaw dropped. My jaw dropped, I, I was dumped on on Friday. So to sit here, it was completely calculated for me to want to request an adjournment of this case. There is no question in my mind. And thank God I had the resources and the great people in my office. And those slides are for me when I'm standing up there and I'm trying to see when I'm asking questions to the witness. So despite what Mr. Oakes says, that I'm attempting to poison the media with the ex- exhibits that I'm introducing, which by the way would be public record anyway, is ridiculous. As far as the integrity of this investigation, I sat in that room yesterday with Mr. Oaks and he told me that he questioned the integrity of the sheriff's department that he had questions with regard to the lead investigator assigned to this case that is investigator Petrosky he sat there and told me that he was questioning his integrity with regard to this investigation he invited us after I said I wouldn't adjourn I wouldn't want to adjourn it it would take forever for the Attorney General's office to come in and look at these documents And do I want to see what's in there? Absolutely. The reason he did it is because he said there was sloppy paperwork. There were lead numbers that weren't in the right order. There were documents that didn't have leads attached to it. He said it was misnumbered, and that's my problem. Now it's my responsibility to pull out my grading material. I would have happily done that a year ago. But I wasn't invited in the office. Now at the 11th hour, I'm supposed to dig through these boxes and it's my responsibility. It's ridiculous.
2: All of this information, which had never been seen or made available to the defense, was only turned over to Thibodeau's defense team 72 hours before the hearing. The timing of this dump raises very serious questions. Why did District Attorney Greg Oaks Wait until then to turn over a massive amount of Brady material. Remember, the Brady material rule requires the prosecutor to immediately turn over any evidence that would be favorable to the defendant, regardless if there was a hearing or not. So that means anything found during the investigation that could help Gary's case must be turned over by the prosecution immediately. If Gary wasn't granted this hearing, the question is, would the prosecution have even turned over this huge amount of evidence? Oaks had already made it clear he was against even granting this hearing. This dump of Brady material within 72 hours of the hearing prompted Thibodeau's defense team to move to vacate his conviction altogether due to prosecutorial misconduct. On the first day of the hearing, Judge Daniel King addressed the dump in his chambers with the prosecution and the defense. That meeting was transcribed by Bianco. King, this reeks, Mr. Oakes. It is your job to provide information. We don't disclose on the eve of trial 3,200 freaking documents. Why shouldn't I grant her motion? Oaks, I just want to do justice. King. The timing of your disclosure makes your statement hollow, Mr. Oaks. Where was this stuff in July? 11th hour disclosures should never happen. Brady is an ongoing matter and this is not ethically appropriate. But when King addressed this issue in court, his tone was different. the court is not pleased with the lateness in disclosure of great volumes of information by the district attorney's office, the court cannot find that it equates to the prosecutorial misconduct. And even if it did, under these circumstances, the remedy requested of the uh, decision to vacate the need for a hearing and move forward vacating Mr. Thibodeau's judgment does not be appropriate to sanction in this case with people's. How could King even know what was included in this dump of information to decide if this was or wasn't prosecutorial misconduct oaks dumped nearly 3000 pages 18 hours of audio and 8 hours of video less than 3 days before the hearing was that even enough time for king to go through all of that information hey people's for the people's fans If you love this show, you'll probably also like Sword and Scale, the longest standing true crime podcast. This isn't just another run of the mill true crime podcast where the host just reads you a story. Since 2014, Sword and Scale has been diving deep into the most horrifying cases. Listening to this podcast makes you feel like you're a fly on the wall witnessing case after case unravel. You'll hear 911 calls, witness testimonies, trial audio, interrogations, and interviews with criminals, witnesses, and victims. Sword and Scale is available bi-weekly on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, TuneIn, and wherever you listen to podcasts. Subscribe today and leave them a review. That's Sword and Scale, also available at swordandscale.com. Subscribe today and give it a listen. Sword and Scale, proving that the worst monsters are real. This episode of Peebles for the People is brought to you in part by Real Paper. In the average household... One roll of toilet paper lasts about five days. That means about 27,000 trees get flushed down our toilets each day. It's difficult to think that our forests are being cut down to be turned into something that we use once and flush down the toilet. Luckily, I came across real paper. It's tree-free toilet paper made from 100% bamboo. Now, I know what you're thinking, and I was skeptical too. But having made the switch to Real Paper, I will never buy name brand toilet paper again. Not only is Real Paper effective, every time I use it, I get a sense of pride, knowing that I'm using a product that did not require the cutting down of a single tree. And the best part is they ship right to my door and there's no shipping cost. Every purchase from Real Paper helps fund access to clean toilets for those in need. Use my coupon code Peebles that's P-E-E-B-L-E-S, to receive 25% off your first order at realpaper.com. Could the information that was held in that banker box really have helped Gary Thibodeau's case? Or better yet, could that information help answer the nearly two-decade-old question, what happened to Heidi? Well, one thing that was included was the polygraph test that Westcott failed. And remember, in that test, Westcott lied when she said she didn't know who was involved in Heidi's kidnapping. Also included in this 11th hour dump was another interrogation of Jen Westcott, conducted by investigator Carmen Rojek, an interrogation which Greg Oakes sat in on. And this time, Westcott was picked up by Rojek and Oakes and brought into the police station. And during the drive, Westcott admitted that Breckenridge did tell her what happened to Heidi. But before I play this audio, I want to warn you, some of the language may be offensive or upsetting to some.
1: Like I said, we're, we're just trying to get to the truth, whatever that might be. I know, uh... Like I said to you the other night, the only thing Roger ever said to me about it is that she was burning a wood stove and taking care of in a van.
2: Oh, is that all? Because that seems pretty significant.
7: So, Jennifer, give me your best today. Tell me everything
1: that you know about this. Um, the only thing I do know about it is what Roger said about that van. What did you say? do old- the Only thing he said to me is that Heidi was burning in a wood stove and taking care of in a van. I don't know where that goes from there, but uh, talking to people and telling you Tracy Breckner knows.
2: In this interrogation, Rojek pushed Westcott further than she had ever been pushed about what she said to Tanya Priest.
1: Because I fucking I'm a fucking bullshitter, it's retarded. I can't even believe I said half the shit on there. So ridiculous. Let's so listen. Cool? I fucking slap myself in the head every day over this. I want you guys to go talk to Tracy Breckenridge. If you guys want listen, I'm telling you, we need to talk to Tracy in regards to the fucking other band. There's another band that you guys aren't aware of, and I can't believe 20 years later I have to tell you guys that. Who? It's out. Who? That's right.
7: that's out. Now who who told you that?
1: Roger and Tracy. Roger told you? Yes. What did he say? You guys are freaking me out here. What did he say?
2: In the interrogation, Westcott broke down in tears and said if Breckenridge knew she was talking to investigators, he would come after her.
1: You know, if he gets out of prison, he's coming after me. What did he say? I think it was just Tracy running her mouth, not thinking I was going anywhere, with it? Who was it?
7: Who was present during this conversation? Me,
1: Roger, and Tracy.
7: What did Roger say when she was? Roger told, told,
1: you? told her to shut the fuck up. Roger told her to shut the fuck up, you stupid bitch. And then what? And that was it. I asked to go home because they were did both home and I wanted to. Did
4: Roger tell you?
1: Then Roger told me to shut the fuck up.
4: Did he tell you what he did with Tracy in the van?
1: No, he didn't. Tracy said I would. He jumped the van. He jumped the van. I said, What do you mean he jumped the van? I said, I don't want, I want, just take me home, just take me home, and that was the end of the, that was the whole, I didn't go back around for a couple of days.
4: Did you ever talk about this again? You must uh,
1: have, you must um, have. No, we didn't talk about it until um, Roger was interrogated. That's when I was like, "Dude, you need to tell me right now what the fuck is up, and he's like, it's something being. she was taken care of, and I don't know what that means. I've never known what it means. I have no idea. I didn't, I really, I was petrified then. And you guys know I've been sitting on that fucking for 20 years.
2: Ever since Westcott admitted Heidi was taken to the trailer she was at on Rice Road in a monitored phone call with Priest, police and the district attorney told the public that there was absolutely nothing to what Westcott said that she was lying to shut Priest up. But when Westcott finally admitted that Breckinridge did tell her what was done with Heidi in an interrogation with Oakes sitting next to her, listening to every word, he hid that information from the public and from Thibodeau's defense team until the very last minute. Oakes even wrote in an opposition, the court should deny Gary's motion to vacate his conviction without a hearing, for a slew of reasons. Quote, the court should dismiss the newly discovered evidence portion of the defendant's motion since he failed to make a motion to vacate the judgment with due diligence after learning of the alleged new evidence. End quote. What Oakes was saying is that because Gary and his defense team did not file this motion directly following the surfacing of new evidence, that they should not be allowed this motion, which is an interesting argument to make, considering Oakes wrote this while knowing full well he was holding evidence back from the defense. In the same document, Oakes wrote, quote, "...in mid to late May of 2013, I spoke with Attorney Bianco and advised her that law enforcement had concluded its investigation." I told counsel that there was no credible evidence to suggest that the individuals named by the out-of-state witness were responsible for Heidi Allen's kidnapping and presumed death, End quote. Oaks was referring to Priest coming forward, and that is a pretty disingenuous argument to make, especially considering that he was sitting on information that corroborated what Priest said while he wrote this. While driving Westcott home, even Rojek admitted that there is an obligation to turn anything related to the case over to the defense.
1: Is this interview going to be on Syracuse.com tomorrow morning? We don't so- work
2: for the paper.
4: We work for the truth and investigations. Whatever was put out there was not by our doing.
1: This, is-
4: this is an investigation. Like I'm telling you to keep it quiet, I'm certainly not going to make chance right. to talk but to everybody.
1: I think, uh, why was it, is it because Thibodeau put in an appeal? Is that how the post standard got their hands on it anyway?
4: Greg Oaks is obligated to turn over anything related to the case to the defense attorney, and that's what he did in that case. But this is what you're telling me now. We need to talk to Tracy.
1: So... They won't, Greg Oaks isn't going to hand any of this stuff over until you guys are done investigating. Yeah.
2: All of this information was more than just related to the case. This was evidence that everything police said about Heidi's disappearance since 1994 was wrong. The interrogation of Westcott took place in August of 2014. Oaks had this admission from Westcott for five months before turning it over to the defense. That begs another question. Was there even more to the story that the prosecution held back until the last minute? When Lisa Peebles, Bianco, and the rest of their team were furiously digging through what seemed like a never-ending amount of information, Oaks was still not done dumping last-minute information on them. When Oakes couldn't reach Lisa Peebles by phone, he began faxing statements with a notice that read, Urgent Brady Material. Underneath that notice was a statement provided by Chris Combs, a former co-worker of Breckenridge, who came forward in July of 2014. Combs said Breckenridge told him he and others kidnapped and killed Heidi. Quote, Christopher stated, That Roger had told him that, quote, we had killed Heidi Allen and dismembered her and placed her in a wood stove where she was burned, and that the stove containing Heidi Allen was placed into a vehicle and scrapped and then transported to Canada, end quote. Combs was brought in and interviewed by police, along with Oaks, on January 1st, 2014, 11 days before the hearing.
1: I just want to get to the truth, whatever that is, um, I was kind of joking around with Rob a little bit, chasing you tonight, and again, what you told me, Mr. Booker, affirmatively hurts, my case, or my side, so to speak, um, but if it's the truth, that's what I want to hear. Right. Um, right. So, I guess, I just kind of give the floor to you, what is it you heard?
7: Basically, Roger, uh, you know, we were working around the shop there one day, and, To be honest with you, I don't even know how it came up. Um, Roger had, if it was bragging or, but he he had said that he, they had burnt. He said they, as in I'm assuming the Murtaugh. He mentioned Murtaugh's name. At one point, I don't remember what he said about Murtha. If he was there, or if he was involved, or um, you know, whatnot, but he basically said that they had burnt her in a wood stove. Okay. They cut her up, put her in a wood stove burner, put her in a vehicle, whether it was a van or a car, I can't say because I don't remember. Years ago, he told me. Right. But they crushed the crushed the vehicle and sent it off to Canada. What
2: he told me we just heard Oakes say to Combs that his story hurts the prosecution's case could that be the reason that Oakes withheld all of that information from the defense until the last minute
7: well, I do know that, you know there been there have been a couple times where he was saying something about it and you know he you brush the guy off because you're working or something you know um, but he definitely De- definitely confessed that he had some kind of involvement to him. So Okay. Now where were we, you guys you, you guys, guys were working together at the time? Yeah, I was at the at that point in time that and like I said, he he mentioned it a few times mm-hmm. and I can't uh, the only one I can remember is being at the shop. I didn't take him serious Okay. Yeah. But when the cabin deal come up there this summer, mm-hmm. um Roger's name came up. And I'm like, ooh. Better tell somebody what Roger said because you know they're out there chasing something that's not there, right? So I better tell somebody. So I told uh, Bill Taylor, okay. Um, and Robbie knows about it, okay. And how do you know Bill? Just friends, okay. He's uh, he was actually my best man at my wedding. Uh, we've been childhood friends for quite a while, so okay. Um, but yeah, he's Roger's a little, he was um. Uh, He's a he's struggling, He's a crack I wouldn't put anything against that guy. So that's
2: why I wanted to say something. Oaks knew about Combs well before January 1st. In the interview with Jennifer Westcott, which Oaks was present for in August of 2014, Combs came up as someone Breckenridge knew.
7: Does Chris Combs ring a bell with you?
1: I think Roger worked with him and his brother, Heath Paving. Paving? Yes.
7: Did did he work with him when you knew Roger? When you were with
1: him? Um, Chris? Yeah. Well, Roger worked with Heath Paving at the end of our relationship. Like, 2004, 2003, 2004.
2: Combs had come forward before Westcott's interview with police. Which means that Oakes knew that Combs had information that could corroborate other witnesses' statements more than five months before he told the defense. Oakes sent the Chris Combs information to Thibodeau's defense team on January 11, 2015, the day before Gary's hearing. And with it, Oakes included an explanation in which he claims he never knew of Combs coming forward. Quote, "I just learned of an individual who advised a sheriff's investigator that Roger Breckenridge admitted that he worked with others to take Heidi Allen to a scrapyard, killed her, burned her, and put the stove containing her remains in a truck that was scrapped and moved off property." End quote. Oaks claimed that the first time he heard of this was January 11th at 3:30 p.m. When he was forwarded an email from criminal investigator Andrew Booker, quote, attached is the email he sent to the lieutenant, which was brought up to me around 3.30 p.m. Upon reading the last line, I pulled the SJS report to see if there were additional details. Attached is a copy of his SJS entry for this lead with the important information highlighted. As you can see, a man named Chris Combs claimed that Roger Breckenridge admitted that he and others took Heidi to Murtaugh's scrapyard, killed her, burned her, and put the stove containing her remains into a truck that was scrapped and moved off the property. As you can see, the investigator spoke with him on July 28, 2014. End quote. Listen to how Oakes ended the message to Gary's defense team. Quote, I make no excuses for investigator Booker. Although he advised me that he spoke with Mr. Combs by phone a few times since July, he simply did not do his job. His failure to follow through on this important lead and his failure to advise my office of this important Brady material is simply inexcusable. I will work with you and the court to make this matter right. Thank you. Very truly yours. Greg, Oaks was in the room in August of 2014 when Rojek asked Westcott if Breckenridge knew Combs. The answer to which was yes. At that time, Rojek clearly knew who Combs was and that he had information. Otherwise, why would Rojek ask Westcott about him? And let me restate this: Oaks was an active participant in that interview listening to every word. I reached out to Oaks to set the record straight in the fall, but he refused to talk to me. And I reached back out to Oaks to address this specific claim. Quote, I don't have a specific memory of Investigator Rojek asking Westcott about Combs, but clearly it happened. Apparently, I did not appreciate the significance of the question in the moment. End quote. In that interview, Westcott was giving Rojek and Oakes the most detailed descriptions we have ever heard about what may have happened to Heidi. We heard Westcott break down in tears after telling them what she knew in fear for her own safety. And Oakes, whose only goal was to find the truth, did not have the wherewithal to follow up with Rojek on the significance of Chris Combs.
5: He was sitting right next to... Carmen Rojak, who was interviewing Jennifer Westcott in August of 2014. Carmen Rojack was specifically asking questions to Westcott about Roger Breckenridge and whether he knew Chris Combs. And there was a discussion going on about how Roger knew Chris Combs. And Oakes was within an arm's length away from Jennifer Westcott. He was leaned over, engaged in the conversation. He clearly was aware of Chris Combs.
2: Gary's defense team scanned everything they received from Oakes's office on January 9th into an electronic folder, and included in that massive amount of material were investigators' handwritten notes detailing the information that Combs provided in July of 2014. So it's difficult to imagine a scenario that the district attorney who was leading the prosecution in this case did not know what he included when handing over crucial information to the defense. Quote, I advised that I could only attest that they had all documents of which I was aware. End quote.
5: He provided me with three thousand pages of discovery. He copied it and sent it to me. Within that box were notes from investigator Booker, who indicated that Chris Combs made admissions that are or, or that disclose admissions made by Roger Breckenridge. So that means that Oakes didn't know what he turned over to me, that he didn't read the documents, that he was unaware of what he was copying and sending over to me on the eve of the hearing. It's baloney.
2: When emailing back and forth, Oakes made sure to point out that during the interview with Combs, he made clear that all he cared about was the truth. To
1: me, the priority is doing the right thing by Mr. Thibodeau and doing the right thing for Heidi right. and, again, I know what, and
2: that's not to pressure you. Oakes repeatedly stated all he cared about was finding the truth. But he consistently found any excuse to throw out information that could have been favorable to the Thibodeaus. Tanya Priest's phone call with Jennifer Westcott, where she admitted Heidi was kidnapped and brought to a trailer on Rice Road, wasn't seen as credible even though Westcott repeated and elaborated on that same story in interviews with police. And yet again, with Chris Combs, Oakes disregarded statements linking Breckenridge to the crime instead of the Thibodeau's, despite the fact that it corroborated Westcott's admissions. Contrary to his words, Oakes's actions seemed to indicate that he was more interested in protecting a conviction rather than finding Heidi. Then, there was Bill Pierce, a man who said he drove by the D&W convenience store the morning Heidi was abducted, and that he saw who kidnapped her. You said you couldn't let it go. Um... Not this
6: time, not this time. I I lived with this so long that I had to get it out. It had to come out. There was traffic constantly going by 104B, or one, on 104 going right, west. Right, gotcha. Pretty near a steady stream of traffic for some reason. All
4: right.
6: And uh, cars were going past me on the on the right side, which were going east, right. same direction I was going. Okay. But they'd be in the outer lane, so going they around. wouldn't have to stop. Okay. They'd go right by, right through. All right. And so I looked over to my left. I was sitting there waiting. And there was no hurry to move forward because there was fire still coming. Yeah. And I saw this girl and this man, or this female, and this man. He was in the in the cab. She was outside. In the cab of what? Yeah. Of the, uh, the van. van. Okay. It was a white van, all white, okay. with rust on it, a lot of rust on a it. A lot of rust spots? or just, Yes. Yeah, okay. A lot of rust spots, a lot of rust. You know how they'll run and stuff. Yeah. Now, have you seen a picture of the Thibodeau van yes, recently? Yes. It was not it, that that's van. That's a black and white van. Yes. It was not that van. No, okay. it was not. All right. Absolutely. All right. Okay. At that time, he gets out of the van and nonchalantly walks to where she is and uh, hit her from behind. With what? With his fist.
4: Where did he hit her? In-
6: right behind her right ear. Okay. On the right side of the neck.
4: Yeah.
6: And she went down? Did she go down? She went down. She just collapsed. And he mm. grabbed her before she hit the ground. Okay.
2: Originally, Pierce came forward trying to help police by saying he thought the man he saw kidnapping Heidi was Gary Thibodeau. But when he saw a picture of James Steen, he realized that Gary Thibodeau was not the man he saw. And uh,
6: the picture of Stein come right out. It jumped right out of the paper at now, me. You brought a paper today. Yes. Okay. Is that the paper you saw? No. Oh, okay. This is a late, uh, just this a little while ago. And it isn't a good representation of the picture itself. Right. But there it is right there. That's, yeah. that's the picture you saw, you said that's, that's it? That's the one that jumped right out at me. That's the guy? That's the guy that did it. No question? No question. What did you That's did you, the guy that did it. How did you feel when you saw that? Could like, it shock you? Or? Well, it was just like somebody slapped me between the eyes. Yeah. And right away, the minute I saw it, I called. Uh, Sheriff, uh, Detective Petrowski. It's a terrible thing. I, I feel so bad for the guy because I could have stopped this if I would have come through yeah. 20 years ago and said, look, this is what I saw. This is who did it. But I never saw a picture of this guy, hmm. this team, until it came out in the paper. Okay, that's, that's the first picture that I ever saw of him. There's no question. That's... There's no question.
2: According to Gary's defense team, They did not discover Pierce's statement until they were on the way to the hearing on Monday morning. Pierce was an eyewitness to the kidnapping who came forward in July of 2014 and identified James Steen as Heidi's kidnapper. But the prosecution and the police decided Pierce wasn't credible and they buried his statement in nearly 3,000 pages of reports and other witness statements.
6: Well he kind of he said well you're testifying uh, this guy did it now you're saying you made a mistake, somebody else
2: did it he said uh,
6: you're not reliable and dismiss me right there
2: It seemed like the prosecution decided anyone who had information that could help exonerate Gary was not credible, regardless of what information they had to offer but the evidence included in the dump that could help Gary Thibodeau's case did not stop there. Ronald Clark was also named as someone who came forward with information that could help Gary's case. Clark said James Steen bragged about Heidi's disappearance.
5: Did James Steen ever talk about the disappearance of Heidi Allen in your presence?
2: Yes, he did.
5: When
0: was that?
4: Um. A few years after the Thibodeau trial, I do remember that, um, he stopped by my house and he, he, I was in a discussion with my boys about going for a bicycle ride and they were probably about 14 or 15 and it was getting late at night and Jay Steen had stopped in to see if I had a day's work that he could do. And he just happened to pop in the door the same time I was like kind of discussing with my boys to let him go for the bicycle ride. And he looked right at my boys, and they were from me to you away. And he said, Oh, boys, he says, it's getting late, and you better listen to your dad. He says, uh, Look at what happened to Heidi Allen. And nobody was talking about Heidi Allen at the time. And I was in kind of a heated discussion with my boy, so I wasn't paying a real lot of attention at that time of what he was saying, and then he, he continued on, and he said, she's long gone now, and he says, she, she's uh, gone to Canada. He says, and I know more about this Heidi Allen case than the Swill County sheriffs. They got the wrong guys. They says, they got the Thibodeaux's, in there, and the Thibodeaux boys didn't do it.
2: The list of people to come forward with information about Heidi's kidnapping was growing, and it was becoming increasingly more difficult for anyone to argue that the Thibodeaux were absolutely the ones behind Heidi's kidnapping. For Gary Thibodeau, the hearing was a chance for the truth to come out, no matter what the outcome would be. And over the more than three-month course of the hearing, what really happened to Heidi became a bit more clear. There wasn't a discussion
6: there. I didn't want to do them signed statements, and that's the reason I signed them the way I did. I'm doing life without parole in prison, lady. I am not a snitch, plain and simple. And that's what I told them. I'm not going to sit here and tell on people. I drove the step-deck trailer. That's where I went. I said, if they would have, like I told them that day, if they would have put that van on my trailer and Heidi would have been in that van, that's where it would have went,
4: right to the shredder.
2: Would the testimonies in this hearing be enough to grant Thibodeau a new trial? Would these testimonies lead us to Heidi's remains? Find out on the next episode of Peebles for the People.
3: go Lord, won't you let that free man go Lord, won't you let that free man go
2: Stay up to date on Heidi Allen's story by following and subscribing to Peoples for the People on Apple Podcasts, Spotify and wherever else you listen to your podcasts.